Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. We're so glad you're back with us again this week. It has been a fabulous week. Lots going on in Washington, on Wall Street, and around the world. Uh, we had a great forecast last week, last week, and an even better one for you coming up tonight. Uh, Jack Perugian, the Jack Perugian, my great friend, uh, coming to us from Chicago. We have Dan Mahaffey uh, from Washington, along with Les Munson. This is a great forecast and lots to talk about. Markets have been doing exceptionally uh, well, basically, 25,500 on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. S&P 500 holding in there just shy of that very important 2,800 level. Oil, something that we talked with Jack Perugian about just before the holidays in December, now coming back at $57 a barrel. That's up over $11 a barrel since Jack was last on with us. He was on just prior to the Fed's uh, rate hike announcement. Gold holding in there. Ten-year Treasury, 2.6%. Two-year Treasury, 2.45%. So we still have a positive yield curve, even though it's only 15 basis points at this point. Uh, Markets are still looking okay. Lots of nervousness around Boeing and other things with China. We're going to get to all of that coming right up. Remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. So if you are feeling ebullient or if you are feeling scared, be careful, settle down, don't do much because uh, when you make those emotional decisions, you're most likely to make mistakes. My friend Jack Perugian, I I don't even want to say how long we've known one another, but it is, it is uh, we're, we're getting into a couple of decades. Uh, it's been at least 20 years, I know. Uh, Jack uh, is the chief economist, co-founder, and director of the, Universal, of the Universal Compute Exchange and the India Compute Interchange. He was CEO of Index Futures Group uh, for Nico Securities uh, on the floor of the Chicago Exchange. Uh, he was um, senior vice president for Credit Agricole, Commerce Bank, uh, this is an insider's insider, a pro's pro. He's a published author, Secrets of the Trading Pros. Uh, it's just fabulous. A CNBC contributor uh, all over the world uh, and a good buddy of mine. Hey, welcome back, Jack. Uh, you know what? I, got, I sound so good when you, when you introduce me like that. You know what? I got to tell you, you got you to introduce me more often. I like that. <laughs> do you, do you, did you like that? Your mother would approve, you think? She, she, she would have approved. I got to tell you right now, I just want to make sure my kids hear that so they can hear the <laughs> tape. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, so make sure that you email them a link uh, and, and they can listen. To, once again, I'll call them, actually. Uh, I'll call them in person. So, Jack, last time you were on, December the 18th, you said that uh, uh, we were getting ready to have a Fed hike, but that the uh, odds for that on the CMA had were only 68% the day before a rate hike. That was odd. Uh, we saw a shift to a very dovish neutral policy not long after that. Um, and you said that the dumb money was over with. The dumb money had been made. Uh, and that you said that we should watch oil prices very closely. If it went below 40, we thought you thought we would have trouble. Well, 
As usual, Jack Perugian was absolutely dead on, ladies and gentlemen. You want to listen to somebody? You want to, Of course, you need to listen to the forecast if you want to stay well-informed about markets. But uh, you really need to listen to my friend Jack. Jack, as you think back to the middle of December when we last chatted on the forecast, what do you think exactly happened? How? What's transpired since then? Where are we now? Well, I think there, there are two things that have happened. One, um, we we were hoping was going to happen, and that is that the, you know Jay Powell came to his senses, uh, and and we were very concerned that he was he was going down the wrong path. And and I think you know we were collected. When I say we, I think the street collectively uh, was looking at what the Fed was doing and and kind of scratching its head. Uh, and it's one of the reasons the market was having so much trouble. And, and the other thing, of course, is the fact that we were we were talking so hawkishly about trade. And, you know, we're still not out of the weeds yet on trade, and that's one of the reasons the market's having trouble. But, but if you think about what was going on back then, we had a Fed uh, that had geared up that told us that they were going to continue to, rate, uh, to, to raise rates. Uh, you know, we had, we had a president that was shooting the bow across the boat, uh, the Chinese trade boat. And, uh, and, of course, you know, on top of that, we had stocks that were in freefall. Um, and much of that, you know, when you go back and think about it in hindsight and you talk to portfolio managers, especially those that were handling assets from abroad, it seems a lot of that pressure, uh, Michael, came from sovereign wealth funds, it, and they came from, from places that you'd expect, uh, people that needed to repatriate capital, China, uh, the Saudis, uh, uh, Europe. These are areas that, that are still struggling a little bit and, and, quite frankly, are in desperate need of cash. And, and so, Jack, uh, I think that's very – I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. And we did see, certainly, as the, as the markets pulled back 20 percent uh, in, in December – and we saw a government shutdown. We saw retail sales numbers really kind of flag a bit, too. Um, we saw hiring and employment numbers uh, flag a bit as we got through that period. But I have been saying, Jack, and I want to know, you feel free to disagree with me, but I have been saying that this was a failure of consumer sentiment and not a failure of the consumer that the soundness of the consumer is still intact, that this was an emotional reaction. And really, I think that the consumer is in a pretty good position to recover. And so I think it's in, and have been led by the investors who have recovered. Uh, what do you think about what, what I think about the consumer? I, I think you're, you're dead on. I think you're, you're right on as far as that goes. Here's the thing that's happened, Michael. Over the course of these last couple of decades that, that we've been market observers and traders, uh, you yes. know, the market structure has changed. What used to take, uh, you know, the life of a contract in the S&P now takes uh, two or three weeks. You know, it's no longer yes. where you're looking for that correction to last six months. And if, you, if you're not careful, you miss it. So, so market structure now has, has completely changed. And what's happening with that, of course, is that sentiment changes very quickly. And, and, and with it, of course, comes the fact that, you know, usually the public, and I hate to say this because usually your public is they're very well informed and they're right quite often, but the public is usually wrong especially when, when we're talking yes. about sentiment. I mean, they're always bearish on the bottom, and they're always very ultra-bullish on the top. So it's one of those things, and it was almost the perfect storm that kind of came together. Um, and, and we kept talking about it. I remember being on CNBC and talking about a V-shaped recovery, and I got hate mail. 
people thought I was out of my mind when I was talking about a V-shaped recovery. And I said, well, quite frankly, you know, I said exactly what you said. I said, the economy is still strong. The consumer is still strong. What you just see here is, is, is an aberration. And that's exactly, I think, what we, we saw. And I've, I've, got a, I've got a good feeling our old friend Larry Kudlow is going to be absolutely right before the year's out. And we might even see a three number again with GDP. No, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, Jack. Now, Jack, you know, you are such, I, 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 you are such a nice and reasonable man. How in God's name do we get to a 3% handle on GDP with all due one, respect, one, one, which is what you say thing, to somebody when thing, you're ready Michael. to insult them? Yeah. With, with, with one thing, and that, and that is truce with China. If we get that, and you have a, a 10-year trading at 2.6, we have zero inflation, basically no inflation at all, all right? You've got, and CPI today tells us that you've still got pricing power with a lot of these producers. Let's see how PPI comes out tomorrow. But that, that is all a, a foundation for an expansion of the multiple, all right? And right now you're looking at, what, a 16, maybe 16 and a half if we're looking at $175 this year? That's nothing. That's nothing, Michael. Think about it. I mean, you and I lived through a period when Soviet missiles were aimed at us, and we were looking at a 22 to well, 25 multiple on the market. So to me, so, something's uh, uh, happening here. So the 16 multiple, Jack... That that now we're we're up almost. We've recovered most all of the of the of the big dip. I mean, we've come back to twenty percent. We're up what almost ten eleven percent so far year to date. What do you think for the rest of the year? If you've got that positive GDP forecast, if you're saying we're going to hang out at two point six percent on the ten year, you, you that's got to tell me that we could add another ten percent to the S and P five hundred without any problem. Is that what you're thinking? And and he, and here's the thing: nobody expects it. You've got portfolio managers that are underinvested. People have been fighting this correction. And, and let's, let's take a giant leap together. What if it's not a correction? What if I'm right, and this is the beginning of the next leg of the bull market, all right? In which case, what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to be left behind. And you and I know that is usually the recipe for a market that starts to run. So, as I said earlier, and I said, I remember talking to you once before, the, the easy money, that dumb money was on that big bounce. The hard money has been yes. over the course of these last couple of months. But what we will see, in, if indeed we do see a trade truce with China, we will see another hockey stick move in stocks. And I want to be ready for it, and I want to be there. Okay. I talked to a, uh, I talked to a friend of mine, an investor, a guy who's been sitting on a ton of cash, and I, I called him in December, Jack, and I said, now I want to put in, and it was a significant, it was tens of millions of dollars. And he said, uh, and I quote, Michael, I don't know. The market just feels awful to me. This feels awful to me. And I said, perfect, we'll do it today. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it's, right. And, it's the, and you and I know that, that you know, un- unfortunately, the herd is usually wrong. I mean, occasionally they're right, but usually they're wrong. And, and when you start to see all of the, uh, the, the bearish articles, uh, the very, you know, there was a time I remember what I used to do, and I still do it to a certain degree. Is I'll watch, the, you know, CNBC because you know you and I are on CNBC, and if I see right, you know, absolutely, half, if I if I see half a dozen people come out and they're all bearish, I get bullish. 
And then yep. I, and, and the opposite yes. will happen. If, if they're all bullish, I'll start to think I've got to trim my position back a little bit. Okay, well, I do the same thing. But, Jack, I want to be clear. Are you saying that we are in the beginning of a new phase of this bull market? Because I, I, I was seeing some commentator coming out today saying, we've been in a bear market, we're still in a bear market, the bear market hasn't changed. Read that today on CNBC.com. You're saying first stage of a bull market? I, I, could not, I, I, I couldn't disagree with that person more. And I know who that person is, and I won't name them. But I'll tell you this. I, I see something happening right now globally that is that has completely changed my mind. And having traveled around, and look, I, I was just in the U.K., you know, God bless my daughter. She just got her master's out there. But i, I got to tell you. I, oh, and, congratulations. And been, thank you. And I've been following the Brexit situation, which, which in itself, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll say this about Brexit. It is Y2K. It doesn't matter. And you heard it from me first. Oh, come How about on, that, Michael. One, really? One day, one day you're going to say you're going to say I heard it from Barugian. All right, but it it really. I say that all the time. It. Yeah. <laughs> it really doesn't but, matter. Uh, but, okay, but but get back. So you see something going on that others don't. Tell me about that. That's what I want to hear. I, We've got to go. But I, what I, do you I, see that others I don't see? see? A, a technological shift. I see AI, machine learning, taking manufacturing taking research, taking pharma, taking everything to the next level. We are going to see a shift, a paradigm shift in, in everything that we do. That, that's, and we're going we're to create more data in the next two years than we have in the entire history of mankind. All of that is going to play a role in what's going to be a, probably one of the biggest bull market runs that we've ever experienced in our life. I absolutely feel that. And you know me. I'm not one to pump up stocks. I'll trade both sides of the market. Now, wait, I'm Jack. a trader. Now, I'll make now, money okay. or down. Now, yeah. now okay, I, I'm going to drill down just a couple more. I'm, I know I'm over my time limit, but I, I've got to come back here. If we have, let's let's uh, meet in the middle and say we have 2.5% GDP, can we get 5 or 6% earnings growth? A couple of, I mean, is that what you're thinking? I mean, or are we just going to see a big multiple expansion? I don't see, I mean, if we anniversary, now that we've anniversary passed this tax cut and other stimulus, where do you see the big driver for this bull market? I, I haven't seen CapEx pick up yet. I've seen, you know, a, a right. trillion dollars repatriated. I've got, um, I, I expect to see some spending coming out of these corporate. Remember, it took them a year to bring that money back. So, so look for them to start spending that money. And, yes, I do think we can see 5%. And I think we can see an expansion in the multiple simultaneously, which gives me that feeling where we can see that hockey stick move. It's one, it's one of those okay. things that happens every – the perfect storm happens every now and then, Michael. Okay. Uh, listen, I'm loving it, Jack. So you're telling me that we could easily I'm, – I'm I don't want to put words in your mouth – easily be 2,500 points higher by the end of 2019? Uh, maybe not quite 25 points higher from here. Uh, but oh, I, if we're talking Dow, yes. But I look at – I trade the S&P. Dow, 2,500. So I've been looking for maybe – Maybe a 3,300 S&P by the end of 2019, um, which is still significant. But I'm looking for, and, and, and this is where I'm really at, I'm looking for a, a 4,000 S&P in another three years. 4,000 S&P in another three years. From your mouth to God's ear, uh, I, dear God, I hope you're right. That would be fabulous. So the one message, Jack, from Jack Perugian then to Fred and Ethel at home who are listening, wondering what to do with their money is, 
If you're not invested, you should be, and if you are invested, you should stay that way. Am I right about that, Jack? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. The biggest problem somebody can have right now is losing out and missing and missing purchasing power parity, which is really what's going to happen if you're left behind in the next run in the market. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Jack Barugian, a pro's pro, an expert's expert, and the best thing I ever get to say, my friend, thank you for being on the Farcast. <laughs> my pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come right back just a couple of seconds uh, with my friend Dan Mahaffey. We're going to be talking Washington. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says that the president's unfit, but she shouldn't impeach him. We're going to find out what that means, what's going on with Brexit and China when we come back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It is such a privilege to be with you in your earbuds, in your cars, in your offices, in your homes. We are uh, delighted to be with you. And thank you for your notes, for your feedback about our program. I've been traveling around the country over the past uh, week or two, and folks just come up to me and say, I love the Farcast really means a great deal to us. We work hard on this. We get some great guests. Uh, What a terrific segment with Jack Perugian. And now, uh, the great Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and the Congress. Also, uh, though he's going to be our feature in the next segment, but he's already in the studio, so we're going to give him an open mic. Lester Munson, my friend Les Munson, uh, is... uh, is a expert, of course, uh, in U.S. foreign policy, national security, uh, and uh, the congressional role in foreign policy and decision-making, principal at BGR, government affairs, a Washington's insider insider, and a really, really smart guy, along with being an exceptionally nice guy. Uh, Les, we're glad you're with us tonight, too. Thanks. Um, Okay, we're going to charge right ahead with Dan Mahaffey. Dan, Speaker Pelosi, Speaker of the House Pelosi, says that the president is not fit to be president, but she really is not going to impeach him. Uh, China uh, seems to be trying to come up with some sort of trade accord uh, here. And Brexit, wow, Theresa May got walloped again today, walloped again. Uh, We need to know what all of this means. Let's start with the Speaker of the House. Well, I think it's interesting to see what the uh, what Speaker Pelosi is saying there, um, because she's clearly drawing a line between uh, where she thinks the House can go uh, politically and what a lot of the uh, more vociferous further left elements uh, in the base may want to see. And I think she looks at it and looks at the scorecard and remembers it's it wasn't AOC or uh, Rashida Tlaib or Ayanna Presley or any of them who flipped a seat. Uh, from red to blue, it was really the the suburban districts, the the purple areas of America, where it was college-educated voters who said, uh, look, we, we don't like the way the president's doing business, uh, but we also don't want to put our country through uh, the political ringer unless there's really cause to do so. Okay. So uh, 
you, this is this kind of goes along with one of your earlier theories, Dan. You said there were two approaches that a Democratic House could take in dealing with the president. One you said was impeachment, and you thought that that would not be a wise thing for them to do strategically. And number two, you said they could just subpoena him to death and drive him absolutely crazy and not give him that uh, actually uh, foil against which he could fight uh, in in the in the in the open political debate. So. Are we basically seeing Mahaffey strategy two being employed by the Democrats and Speaker Pelosi? I think you see a certain amount of that. I think they also understand that it'd be entirely uh, tilting at windmills to go uh, for impeachment, given that they would never get the votes uh, in the Senate. Uh, so it, w- it would simply bog things down without any way of actually uh, affecting a impeachment outcome of removal from office. Uh, and they've got him where they want, with subpoenas, with hearings. They can look into the finances. They can call the uh, the various lawyers from the Trump organization, uh, even start to look into uh, broader aspects of uh, the family business if they want to. Uh, they can approach all of those and not go for the, you know, as I described, I said impeachment would be trench warfare. Uh, this is much more of a guerrilla warfare that they can use against the White House. You know, I was, uh, uh, I was just at a uh, conference where uh, I got to spend some time with Fox News anchor Leland Vittert. And as a CNBC guy, I don't get much exposure to the Fox folks. But Leland Vittert, very good, uh, very nice guy, enjoyed being with him very much. He's pointed out that uh, for the past uh, six weeks, at the beginning of the week, he has repeated uh, the following line. We expect some sort of report from the Mueller investigation coming as early as this Friday uh, to the Attorney General, some version of which could be released as early as this weekend. He said he's been doing that every week <laughs> for six weeks. <laughs> uh, any idea, Dan, whether this could be the week, and is there anything more in this Mueller investigation uh, that uh, is going to be fodder for either side or, or, or perhaps uh, a vindication? Well, I think, look, we, we have this Groundhog's Day of this week is the week when it comes to uh, the Mueller report. And the only people who probably know when the Mueller report comes out are the people working on the Mueller team and perhaps Attorney General Barr if he already has it, uh, because that initial transmission of the report would actually be confidential. Uh, so what we can expect from that perhaps is, uh, you know, maybe you see, uh, you know, some more measures around uh, Manafort and Stone and those trials. And, and again, as I've referred to them, the, the island of misfit toys that came on during the campaign. Uh, but at the same time, you have to think through a federal prosecutor's mindset. And, you know, they still haven't gotten uh, any kind of questions or subpoena to Trump himself if they wanted to. Uh, so either... Uh, they're holding off till they have all the facts before they they ask uh, those questions of the White House, uh, or it will be uh, somewhat uh, valedictory for the White House because there was never anything they got from those lower level fish that tied it back to uh, President Trump himself. Right. Okay. So uh, more we're we're just hanging on uh, on the edges of our seats as we have been for a while, seeing what comes out of that. Let's uh, let tell me about Brexit. It, this looked like a uh, fairly stunning defeat for uh, Prime Minister May. 
Well, calling it calling this a defeat, Brexit is a a dog's breakfast, and and calling it that is an insult to what I feed my dog each morning. <laughs> um, this whole process <laughs> is is now being driven by uh, the fact that it is a a Mexican standoff within the House of Commons itself that. Uh, no one wants to get May's deal across the finish line, which is what the EU is saying the best deal so far. Uh, the Tory hardliners, though, don't want to force anything because they're terrified of the idea of a general election and the, the concept of Prime Minister Corbyn. Uh, and then, though, if you if you took a lot of the labor lawmakers out to a pub and, and got a few ales in them, they would probably also say that they're terrified of the idea uh, of Prime Minister Corbyn. And really what has happened there is we're finally seeing everything come off the rails because uh, a parliamentary system is not supposed to be straightjacketed by referenda, public leadership elections, or fixed parliament terms. And all that has done is box them into, basically, I think we'll see the vote tomorrow, uh, that they there won't be an agreement for no deal. They'll, they'll say we have to have a deal, and they'll have to go hat in hand back to Brussels for... Uh, some form of extension, and then you get the mess of, well, uh, how do uh, the Europeans go ahead with their elections with a with British representatives who are trying to uh, leave the leave the EU? That the whole idea was that this would be done before the EU elections took place, but now we have to to figure out this whole structure. Uh, you know, perhaps okay. we see a few more members of Parliament move to this. Uh, independent group. Okay, in so the t- okay, okay. So you got to tell me. You got to tell me how this how this ends up. I see this this mess becoming messier. How does this end up? You at one point speculated there could be a referendum back to the uh, Britons, uh, and then you 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 have said that that appears to be less likely. How does this end up? And how much longer does it take? And Les Munson, I'm going to ask you to weigh in after he comes in. Yes, sir. Well, we're getting almost to the point where we need a, a quantum physicist to figure out the the out comes here for the British, but it either is some combination of you go back for uh, a referendum or the EU says, you know what, hard exit, you're out, don't let the door hit your butt on the way out. Uh, and, and, and what, okay, less odds, hard exit? I think the, the hard exit is becoming more and more likely. It's, uh, if you look at the various options for things that could actually happen and you graph them out in a flow chart, four out of the five are a hard exit. Uh, and the other one is is becoming increasingly unlikely. Uh, on the other hand, British members of parliament themselves don't really know what's going to happen. They're totally unsure of the process. There seems to be no way forward. Uh, for me, as an outside observer, I think it's there's a delicious irony here that the United Kingdom is falling apart because of what could be a hard border in Ireland. There's some sort of Po- drunk poetic justice over this situation. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of people will be toasting this St. Patrick's Day to the, to that fact, and that the uh, and some of this still comes from that. I think deep down in the in the uh, the tweed jacketed MPs from the home counties of England still can't come to the terms with the fact that Ireland's an independent country. Uh, it, 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 well, uh, Ireland seems to be doing okay with that, which is uh, which is good news. Um, 
All right. So weigh in before I move on to China, weigh in on what Jack Perugian said. Jack Perugian said that Brexit is going to be just the Y2K of uh, this uh, particular decade. A nothing burger. Totally just forget about it. That doesn't sit right with me. I've got to tell you just economically and what that's going to mean. We've got already got a weak uh, EU and this isn't going to help, in my opinion. But how does that strike you guys? Do you do you think this is a nothing burger? Well, I think in, I would be worried about it if I were a, a British consumer or living in Britain myself uh, from from the outside. This is a train wreck in slow motion. Companies are having time to relocate to Dublin, Frankfurt. Uh, markets are planning around this, uh, and really, you know, the the Britons are pushing themselves to their own irrelevancy during this process. As the rest of the world looks on and says, "Okay, we don't want part of this mess," and and why are we going to bother to do a, a deal with these baddie people who who can't seem to agree on up or down? And in a perverse way, uh, it makes the European yes. Union look stronger because they've they've held off the British craziness. They're the ones who have held the line. Uh, that the EU, which has never been a natural fit for the British, uh, may be stronger without them. Yeah, at least for for all the over-regulation that you have with Europe, at least it's far more predictable by comparison to uh, to Britain, which is a slap in the face to all those Brexiteers who said that they'd be the Singapore of the North Atlantic. Yeah, right. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see, but uh, uh, good luck with that. All right, now, China... Uh, has had uh, and and before and Dan is our as is an expert on China. Uh, you know we've got to go to break. Let me go to break right now, and I'm going to come back finally uh, before we start in with Les. Let's just do a little China first with Dan, and then we'll transition China over to Les. Uh, right when we come back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com. Or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Forecast. I am Michael Farr, broadcasting this evening from Naples, Florida. I wish I could be in the chatter studio with my friends Dan Mahaffey uh, and uh, Les Munson. Of course, our producer, Harry Jennings, is there. And we've had a great forecast. Uh, Jack Berugian, fascinating. And boy, did Jack get it right at the end of 2018 and his call for 2019 and the transition out of those lows from 2018. Absolutely spot on. Jack Berugian now calling for a significant bull market. I think that is fascinatingly bold of Jack. After last year, he said the easy money had been made. Maybe there's a lot more money to be made on uh, Wall Street with a hockey stick 
kind of a straight chart pattern going straight up. It's a bold, bold move. I continue to try to be cautious uh, as we are always with our investment dollars. Okay, fabulous conversation uh, as we finish there on Brexit. It's time to shift to China now. Uh, Let me give you guys some figures. Uh, The announced target uh, for Chinese GDP growth right now, 6 to 6.5%. That's the first time they've used a band target uh, instead of a solid number. It's the first time it was that low. On March the 8th, the uh, February dollar-denominated exports uh, were expected to fall 4.8%. They fell. This is exports, dollar-denominated exports. Supposed to fall 4.8%. They fell almost 21%, 20.7%. Huge drop in exports. China did not export in dollar-denominated exports anywhere near what they thought they would. February dollar-denominated imports into China expected to fall 1.4%, four times greater than that, 5.2%, 5 5.2%, fourfold uh, higher. So uh, they thought that their uh, exports would fall a little bit. They fell a ton. They thought that their imports would uh, not go up too much. Uh, they, they actually did go up even more. Uh, that was a very bad balance for China. Their overall trade surplus for the month came to $4.12 billion for that month, much weaker than the expected, are you ready, expected $26.38 billion. Uh, they were looking for a $26 billion trade surplus. They came in at $4 billion. Dan Mahaffey, who lived in China, who understands it as well and speaks Mandarin, tell us, uh, is China in trouble here economically? Is things getting bad? I think they're, the, the plane is experiencing a little turbulence right now. They're trying to manage their transition away from being an export-focused economy. That's been one of their longer-term goals. They're trying to build up Uh, their own uh, domestic economy, domestic demand. They want to see, uh, you know, some resolution to this uh, trade disagreement because it is, I think, affecting uh, some of their economic output. But I also think we we can't look uh, too far beyond the fact that we've seen uh, the rest of the world economy slowing down. Uh, and even when uh, U.S. Uh, retailers and retail sentiment uh, has a little bit of a, a blip like that, uh, where are those Chinese-made goods going? They're going largely to the American consumer. Uh, so it's it's kind of a, a one-two punch as they're uh, flying through these clouds, and I'm mixing metaphors. Um, but it is it is still something to... to uh, to, to keep an eye on in the sense of as they go into these trade talks uh, and try and finalize it with President Trump, they're going to feel that pressure. I, I think also when President Trump walked away from the uh, the deal in Hanoi, uh, it, it gave them some pause about, uh, you know, what exactly the president would be willing to accept. Uh, it strengthened Lighthizer's hand as he negotiates with them. Uh, and so I think eyes will be on this as, as we, we get down to the wire um, and unlike North Korea, where uh, far too much was left up to the leaders to, to decide upon, I think Lighthizer and his Chinese uh, counterparts will have a lot of this settled, and then it will be up to uh, Presidents Trump and Xi in Mar-a-Lago. Les Munson, what do you think? 
I think Dan is setting up a terrific segue to the Boeing issue by using the airplane metaphor. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a little worried about where he's going to take this thing. Uh, I, I, uh, just to extend the metaphor, it's possible China needs not just to you know, steady the plane, but to have a whole new software suite in the cockpit uh, and really <laughs> revamp its economy. Maybe that's what Boeing needs to do. It's unclear. Uh, <laughs> There was a study that came out, Michael, you're probably aware of this, that showed uh, that the Chinese economy, the the growth has been overstated by like 20 percent for years. And in fact, the Chinese economy is not as big as uh, as it would appear from the official statistics. There's uh, someone from the University of Chicago involved. So I assume it's a pretty legit study. And uh, (laughs) and so one of the one of the things people are asking about this uh, pending a summit between Xi and Trump in, at Mar-a-Lago in Florida is why is Xi doing this? What is what is the benefit for him? It appears to be win-win-win for Trump. Why would President Xi go and do this? It's possible he needs to go. He has no other choice. If he wants to salvage the Chinese economy and kind of keep the plane in the air, he's got to go there and uh, take the best offer he can get from Trump. Okay, so here's, here, here's my question, Les. Uh, how much of the weakness in China is just the normal following of a of a rather pronounced and negative trend in uh, economic growth and development in China, and how much of it has been caused by the tariffs and the and the trade friction that's been going on here? I mean, can the president take credit for some of this weakness in China? I think it's going to look like he's going to be able to take credit for it. Whether, in fact, the the tariffs had an actual deleterious effect on uh, the Chinese economy, I don't I don't pretend to have that expertise. I think we we probably won't know for a while. But it, you've got to give President Trump credit. He did he deployed tools that everyone else in Washington was afraid to deploy. It looks like he's brought uh, China to the table in a constructive way for the United States. So there's he'll be able to very plausibly claim, claim credit for a big win in a new deal with China. And a new deal with China is uh, is very important in that we have really suffered from from a lot of unfair trade, outright theft of technology uh, and and uh, artificial intelligence, all sorts of of uh, uh, all sorts of data that the Chinese have stolen and not abided by. How do we get them, now that they are at this weak moment, now that they appear to be be vulnerable, now that it seems that she might actually have to, in order to keep the plane up there, show up at Mar-a-Lago and actually go through this with Trump, how do we get what we need out of them? So, I I mean, uh, how do we get uh, not just soybeans and steel when we really have concerns about technology and artificial intelligence, how do we get what we need out of China, Les? Well, the details, the details of the deal are going to matter. I'm told that uh, the discussions have encompassed uh, a lot of the concerns of the U.S. business community on IPR and uh, theft and the Chinese legal system not being any kind of place where you could go get a fair outcome of a complaint. Uh, the, the U.S. needs to keep a hard line on enforcement of this deal. We need to, to be very tough on those details. But at the same time, I do think the U.S. approach, and President Trump has, has largely been threading this needle, needs to realize that 
we need China almost, we, the United States, need China almost as much as China needs the United States. And while we may have the upper hand right now, we need to make sure we can have a constructive relationship going forward. So you don't want to uh, spike the ball in the end zone. You don't want to do an obnoxious dance after you score. You want to you want to win with dignity, and you also want to find a way for your partner. And China is an economic partner of the United States uh, to keep a constructive relationship going. And there's one other thing I would this, add too to this yes. is that, and, and so far the administration has not done this, even though the Europeans have asked. Uh, one thing that would really put pressure on the Chinese is that the Europeans have asked for the details of, of what we're covering in some of these negotiations, and and that would also help present a united front. If you get the Europeans, the Japanese, uh, and others to constructively work uh, uh, on Chinese trade behavior, uh, that would be a, a major step. Uh, and then beyond that, as, as you look at technology and stuff, it's more about getting our own house in order to win that next five to ten years once we've gotten a constructive deal with the Chinese. If you try and push them down and keep them down, you're just going to play into the historical tropes and we're going to be on a path of, uh, of decoupling that neither side can afford. But, but less actually what Dan just said in calling for more of a multilateral approach uh, as we approach China, or at least a sharing of information, is something that Actually, Dan has pointed out any number of times, the president doesn't do multilateral. I mean, he, he can't seem to talk to more than one person in the room at a time and, 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 and takes us out of all sort of multilateral agreement. I mean, how does that happen? Is it realistic, do you think, Les? It is his Achilles heel. And, and I think we've, we've talked about this on the show before, and, and Dan uh, uh, exquisitely so, that this is, this is a blind spot for the president. On the other hand... Uh, he has grown in office. He has demonstrated the ability to uh, pursue coherent good policies. I think Venezuela is not an unreasonable example of that. Uh, I think the fact that he was willing to walk away from the table in uh, Vietnam when talking to the North Koreans was a good sign, a mature sign from the president. So I thought it was fabulous. Yes. Fabulous. So I am I'm guardedly optimistic that he can overcome that Achilles heel enough to make a difference in this case. Let's move back to Washington. Let's come back to Washington now as we, as we wait uh, on what's happening in China and, and on Mueller and all of these other things. Let's talk about what's going on with the Democrats for a few minutes, particularly if there's anything you're watching right now in Washington lesson. I know we're down to a few minutes, but it seems to me that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seems to be dictating the agenda for the Democratic Party and all of the Democratic candidates. I think there are about 430 who have now announced for president. Uh, uh, who, but all of them now have to respond to what this 29-year-old congressman from New York has to say. No matter how outrageous it is, everybody's taking a step back going, well, what she really means, what, what, what congressman you know, AOC really means is, uh, and, and trying to explain her agenda. What's going on? Uh, will Biden get in this race? Um, and, and what is Bernie Sanders doing anyway? Bernie, whatever Bernie Sanders is doing is working. He's at the top of the polls. Uh, he's got AOC on his side. Uh, the the man is uh, I don't know how old he is seventy five seventy six yeah he's uh, I think he's a hundred and twelve he's in pretty uh, darn good shape for a hundred and twelve and I I gotta say yes. he's uh, while I I disagree with I 
pretty much everything he has to say. He's, he's doing it in a very smart way for his party. I think the acid test is what was discussed before, which is impeachment. Nancy Pelosi has said she's not going to impeach this president, you know, absent uh, new revelations in the Mueller report. That's going to be the acid test because AOC and the rest of the new progressives in her caucus have demonstrated that they can change the policy of their party. If they choose to go after the impeachment issue, can Nancy Pelosi hold the line? Has she already made some sort of deal with the new progressives that this is going to be where she holds and she's going to give them a lot of latitude on other things? I think it's a fascinating question. I think at the end of the day, the Democrats are not going to be able to stop themselves from impeaching this president. Really? Mahaffey, what do you think? I think there's that there's that pressure, and I think it, it, it's almost something, though, that warrants an episode in its own right of this podcast, is we keep missing that uh, Bernie and AOC are the exact same phenomenon uh, in cities and among millennials that we saw with uh, white non-college-educated voters in the Rust Belt. It's that same sense that they are decoupled from capitalism and a market economy that is driving the base. And it's it's a symptom on in both parties uh, where you have a large segment of the American people who do not feel that the, uh, the political economy is working for them. Okay. And finally, I'm out of time, but I, I, I have to know, does uh, Joe Biden get in this race less? What do you think? Absolutely. Yes, he does. Yeah. hundred percent certainty. Yep. And Hundred percent certainty, uh, and uh, can he beat uh, Donald Trump? I think he may be the only one in that field who can beat Donald Trump. He's he's he can speak to those disaffected voters uh, in the Rust Belt states. He can win Pennsylvania. He can win Ohio. He comes from Scranton. Uh, for all of his flaws, and they are considerable, he's an authentic guy and uh, likable when you first meet him, and that's invaluable. Les Munson. Dan Mahaffey, thank you both for being on the Farcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us uh, for another week. Uh, thanks for your notes. Please uh, keep, them, keep them coming. Please share us on social media. Our numbers are growing, and it just warms my heart. Please know how grateful I am to each and every one of you for tuning in every week and for your great support of the Farcast. From Naples, Florida, and I'll be back in Washington next week, also on CNBC next week. Uh, a week from today for the noon hour from uh, 12 until 1. I'll be up there. Uh, please tune in then. Uh, in Naples, Florida this week, a very grateful, as always, Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We're grateful for your support and listenership. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The Farcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope you find the show informative. But before you make a decision to buy or sell any security, please consult with your financial professional. If we can be of assistance at Farr Miller in Washington, please call us or email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com. I'll put you in touch with one of our great professionals. Next week, we'll be with you on Wednesday, following the Fed's meeting with our experts to help you look beyond the headlines. Until next week, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, a quick joke that Michael learned in Ireland this summer. Uh, Margaret Kathleen was the prettiest girl in the village, and she was talking to her beau Seamus one night, and she said, Seamus, you handsome devil, you. If, if you could be stranded on a remote island with anybody in the world, who would it be, Seamus? Tell me, who would it be? He said, oh, that would be my Uncle Patrick. What? It would be my Uncle Patrick. Why would it be your Uncle Patrick? 
Well, don't be ridiculous. He has his own boat. (laughs) 